days ago that even though the formal title of this retreat is a metta or loving-kindness retreat, it's really going to be an everything retreat. And perhaps if you didn't have a sense of what I meant back then, you do now. Just this whole range of emotions that can come up as we do this practice of tending to and opening and cultivating the heart. It includes everything, the fear and the sadness and the judging and the the ill will and the good will and the exuberance and the, the, the lows and the highs, everything. But hopefully also you're getting a real sense of the deep intention of this retreat and this practice, which is towards kindness. And I really think we should redefine metta not as loving kindness. That seems a little too high a bar or put some pressure on us. But just this simple word of kindness, just uh, almost a very ordinary kind of term. But I think we actually misunderstand what is meant by kindness or in its ordinariness, we don't fully appreciate what's being meant here or what's being intended. It kind of reminds me of my mother saying something like, be kind to your sister. Actually, she would more likely what she would say is, don't be mean to your sister. But it was basically that kind of reorienting, you know, of, of caring instead of harm. That in a large family like we had, the not caring was actually pretty common. Um, so kindness doesn't seem like very, a, a, a very exalted state. Uh, there's no Nobel Prize for kindness, right? The most kind person. Um, but it's actually quite profound and if you really think about it and perhaps you have explored for yourself the, the nuances and the meanings of this word because it obviously includes caring, there's generosity in it, we're often offering support and, and uh, uh, words of encouragement, there's certainly empathy But there's also renunciation, a kind of selflessness, because as we're kind, we're really stepping into and supporting the other and finding a way to connect and not be so self-involved. And so just when, when you leave here and you tell people you spent 10 days learning to be kind, they might kind of shake their head and go, really? But I think it's quite profound that we all leave this retreat a little more kind than we were when we came. And we realize as we do this practice that we can't force that kind of kindness, that kind of metta. We, there's no on switch. There's no, you know, do this and it will happen. But what we can do is again and again create the conditions for kindness, the conditions for caring. Out of the connection, out of holding these people, these various beings, in our hearts, all of the ones that we've included in our practice. And that we actually have more of a choice than we might have thought we have. That again and again we can choose kindness. And again, in in my first talk, I quoted the Dalai Lama where he says something like, be kind whenever possible. But it's always possible. And I think that's true, perhaps more true than we might realize. He also says... When we feel love and kindness towards others, 
It not only makes others feel loved and cared for, but it helps us also to develop inner happiness and peace. So even as we're spending all this time well-wishing and caring for others, as we've said, there's so much benefit for ourselves and our own hearts. That's actually where the real transformation is possible in this development, this capacity for caring. And it brings a sense of ease, of sanctuary that Temple spoke about last night. But then, of course, the far enemy of kindness is ill will or wishing ill, uh, being critical or harsh, and especially judging, the judging mind. And this is such a common experience for many of us, such a theme. A number of people have spoken about it in the meetings we've had. This relentless care, uh, comparing and judging, inner and outer, ourselves and other, the inner experience and the outer experience. I saw this quote from Jules Pfeiffer. He's a cartoonist that often has a, more than a touch of irony in his cartoons. He says this about himself. I grew up to have my father's looks, my father's speech patterns, my father's posture, my father's opinions, and my mother's contempt for my father. (laughs) So we've learned a lot of these ways of relating. We're conditioned by our family uh, um, units. We're conditioned by our parents, by our siblings, by our schooling. But we also learn those attitudes, and we learn them very early. The not good enough, or the critical mind. And so this can become a really um, pervasive attitude in our minds and hearts, and there's a source of a lot of sense of disconnection, of isolation, and you really a fear of anxiety and worry because the mind is constantly doing this evaluating and often in a negative way. I like this practice that Ramdas, that great spiritual teacher who lives now in Maui, talks about. He talks about turning people into trees. Seems a little obscure, but this is what he says. When you go out into the woods and you look at trees, you see all these different trees. And some of them are bent, and some of them are straight, and some of them are evergreens, and some of them are whatever. He's not a real nature guy, I guess. And when you look at the trees, the tree, and, but you look at the tree and you allow it, you appreciate it, you see why it is the way it is. You understand that it didn't get enough light, and so it turned that way. And you don't get all emotional about it. You just allow it. You appreciate the tree. But the minute you get near humans, you lose all that. You are constantly saying, you're to this or I'm to that. That judging mind comes in. And so I practice turning people into trees, which means appreciating them just as they are. Good advice. And this appreciating people just as they are includes ourselves. Appreciating ourselves just as we are. This is essential. And this is such a huge area, field, for our practice, this learning to connect to, understand, appreciate, and possibly even love ourselves, just 
as we are. And I really see, I know it was this way for myself, but in so many people I talk to, this, the lack of this is one of the biggest sources of suffering many people have, or the source of all their suffering, however it's manifesting. And what's so interesting about it, it's the one we can do the most about, because it's the one we're actually creating for ourselves. Whatever the external conditions, we're continuing this way of relating that causes so much heartache, so much pain. And you might have felt, if, if, you, if you have this tendency, that you're doing it even more than you usually do here on retreat. Sometimes people say, do I usually talk to myself this way? They're, they're opening to and listening to and hearing their thoughts and seeing what's going on, and they're like shocked to see that this is the theme of so much of their inner dialogue, is this voice of criticism and judging. I actually don't think we're doing it more it's just in the silence, we notice it more, we're being more mindful. And especially in a metta retreat, it's in such stark contrast to these wishes that we're cultivating over and over again. You know, may I be happy? And then this mind that says you're worthless and will never be okay. May I be happy? No, not possible. We start to see that contrast so clearly. And so you may have noticed this running commentary on your experience, this endless narrating of experience, comparing and judging and explaining and justifying and rehearsing and planning. You know, I often say it's like we're the star of our own movie, you know, the movie of me, the story of me. And we produce it and we direct it and then we edit it. And then we critique it, right? Oh, she didn't do as good as she did yesterday. That was not a good move there. Oh, her, her behavior or her meta was much better last night than it is today. And we have this whole production, the story of me, that we're the star of. You know, there's this story of the first, the typical first date where one person is talking on and on and on about themselves but finally says... That's enough about me, so tell me, what do you think about me? <laughs> Unfortunately for most of us, the story of me is often not neutral, often certainly not positive. It's actually an inner critic. It's a negative voice constantly assessing how we are doing and comparing it to everything, you know, to other people, to how we were, to how we think we should be, to what we think the teachers think we should be doing. It's just endless. I, I saw this cartoon by um, Hilary Price, and it's someone in a doctor's office, you know, sitting on the exam table, and the doctor has a clipboard, obviously reading the results of some kind of test, and the doctor says, this MRI proves it. Your mind is full of dumb and repetitive thoughts. I don't know if they've quite got MRIs to that extent yet, but meditation might prove it to us, right? Just if you look at the ramblings of this mind and what it will obsess about, what it will take up and make so much of an issue about, make a lot of suffering around, and sometimes we can have that experience and then an hour or a day later look back and go, 
what was that about? You know, that I was so obsessed with, so upset about, so sure that something needs to be done about this. I need to complain to someone. And so I knew, I know this mind state very well. And certainly as I began my practice, actually it was some time into, you know, being very committed to Dharma practice that I saw how much suffering this tendency of mind was creating for me, not just on retreats, obviously, but in my life. I mean, I'd kind of known it, but meditation brings it into this stark relief. So I got really curious about what is conditioning and supporting and sustaining this tendency towards judgment and negativity and criticism. So I read a lot of books, I, uh, and uh, particularly read this book that I found helpful by Byron Brown, who's a student of A.H. Almas, who created the Diamond Approach. Many people who practice here or teach here have studied uh, with him. He lives in the East Bay. And so does Byron Brown. And so Byron Brown actually came here to Spirit Rock and did a workshop on this. So I attended this workshop just to get a little more familiar with how to work with this tendency of mind. And so a lot of um, my thinking about this was shaped by this book and by Byron Brown's work. I found it very helpful because it has a spiritual dimension. It's not just talking about the psychological underpinnings of this tendency. So Byron Brown says that judgment is a central element of your inner dialogue, the way you talk to yourself. From that point of view, it is second nature to you, so close to you that it is hard to even become aware of its existence. However, there is good reason to isolate this part of your inner process. Self-judgment is perhaps the greatest source of inner suffering and discontent. More than that, or because of that, it is one of the major barriers to change, growth, expansion, and transformation. And I've really seen this for myself and, and students that I work with, that working with the inner critic is one of the powerful ways we can begin this work of transformation. And metta practice is a powerful practice to actually do that kind of healing. And this is not just a kind of, I don't know, bump in the road or some quirky issue that you alone have if you have this tendency and that it's kind of a diversion or an obstacle to practice. This is the heart of our practice. Actually coming to a wise and loving relationship to ourselves is central to our meditation practice. It is, there's no around this. There's no, we'll work a little bit on it on the side and then get back to the real work of meditation. This is our work. This is our practice. And so creating this basic or fundamental attitude of acceptance or kindness to ourselves and therefore by extension to others is, it's, it's essential. It's, it's not a choice, really. And the heart of metta is acceptance, is kindness. Unless we can extend it to ourselves, create this foundation of well-wishing to ourselves, towards ourselves, our inner experience, our outer experiences, our bodies, our minds, our hearts, unless we can do that, we can't really progress or deepen on this path. It's essential.
And what's interesting, as I said, I mean, it's so deeply culturally conditioned for most of us, both on the, on the, in the landscape of the wider culture, but through our families, through our schooling, etc. So much suffering. And yet it's the one area we actually have, if we get curious and begin to work with this, some choice over. This kind of programming has been conditioned through countless moments of experience. But the Buddha teaches that which has been conditioned can be deconditioned. And if we can bring into awareness these choices, these intentions, we can actually change the direction of our minds and our hearts. This is not easy. It's not simple. It's actually a life's work of over and over again choosing choosing kindness, choosing acceptance, instead of choosing the negativity. So we need to bring this whole aspect of our experience into the heart of our practice. If it's really uh, an issue for you, painful for you, to make it central. Mindfulness and metta really are these, these great tools for working with the inner critic or the inner judge. Through mindfulness, we can start to see our thoughts for what they are. They're just this blip of energy in the mind, words or sentences, a voice that we hear. If we don't recognize them, if we don't see them with mindfulness, if we take them up and solidify them and believe them and make them permanent and true, there's our whole world the way it was, the way it will be, with this negative, um, challenging, painful self-view. Same words, same thought, but we see it with mindfulness. And maybe you've had this experience, opening to something, seeing something clearly with mindfulness, and it has a beginning, a middle, and an end, and poof, it just disappears. The mindfulness doesn't allow us to take hold of it, to believe in it. So I always say thoughts have the power we choose to give them. When we're not mindful, they create our reality. You see them with mindfulness, it adds that little space, that little perspective, and there's a choice point there. That's the power of mindfulness, that choice point, that space. And with wisdom, with compassion, we can choose to let them go, choose not to believe them. And again, this isn't something that just happens and good, done with that. These deeply conditioned patterns, we have to do that, as I said, over and over again. Again, from Byron Brown, he says, the only real alternative to self-judgment is knowing the truth about who you are. If you have a deep belief that you are worthless, you must discover where that belief came from and why you believe it to be true. Once you know deep inside you with a direct and felt sense that you have inherent value and are fully acceptable to yourself, then you will free yourself from the need for positive judgment and approval from others and from your own judge. So it's a process of inquiry and engagement and mindfulness, patience and acceptance. 
many of you have found, if not on this retreat, certainly other retreats that you may have done, that practice can start to reveal these tendencies of mind. Old memories can come up, old hurts, old wounds, old grievances, old ways of relating, old memories of actions that we've done or things that have been done to us, and certainly feelings of limitation or deficiency or scarcity. This then is our practice to open to these thoughts, these moods, these emotions, these memories, to get curious about them. What's happening here? Not retelling the story and replaying the old wounds, the old hurts, the old losses, the old places of, of um, trauma, but just really feeling how that impacts us, how that lands in us, and to see can we hold that in mindfulness, and especially mindful compassion. You know, that there's suffering here in this. How do we hold that? And we start to understand the conditioned nature of these experiences. And that whatever happened in that time with these memories, you were doing the best you could with the tools and the wisdom you had available to you. You were trying to take care of yourself or others, but out of your woundedness or your fear or your shyness, you weren't able to actually step into that experience, whatever it is. And so why we always include the forgiveness practice on these retreats, and especially forgiveness for ourselves. Yes, it can be very empowering and healing to forgive others if there's been hurts, to ask for forgiveness sincerely if we recognize that we've caused harm. But the most important place to forgive is ourselves for the harm we've done to ourselves and possibly to others. So important. As they say about forgiveness, forgiveness means giving up all hope for a better past. How much time have we spent, if only, I wish I had, they should have, I should have. It's really useless time. Can't change the past. But as we change how we relate to the past, there is a change. It's not that the past itself changes, but as we change how we relate to it, we see it differently. And we are different. We're more integrated, more empowered, more embodied. So we get curious about these experiences, how we're shaped, how we're formed. Again, in meditation, it's not you know, retelling stories, going back to when you were five years old. This is very immediate in the present moment. But we need to bring the wisdom that we have to these reflections. Again, from Byron Brown, he asks, how does this judging voice, especially this negative judging voice, come into being? He says, as children, we had to learn social norms to get along, to develop a conscience. As this procedure became internalized, it became more active, overcritical. This voice becomes the judge the critic of everything we experience. We can come to see that now this voice is not so helpful and that it limits us and controls us. So it started out 
as a useful way that we learn to navigate. You know, be kind to your sister, share your toys, you know, don't punch your brother or whatever it is. We, we needed that kind of advice. But as this voice got distorted, it started to um, feed these negative messages to us of I'm not good enough, people won't like me just as I am. If people only really knew what I was like, they wouldn't like me. So I have to pretend or hide. And then the judge will often tell us that it's hopeless, that we'll never change. This is who we are. You haven't got what it takes to actually be someone in the world. Again from Byron Brown, the judge is a conscience that helps you distinguish right from wrong. It is a motivator to push and persuade you to act in your life. It is a guard that stops inappropriate feelings and behavior. It is a counselor for support in making decisions. It is a guide that provides direction as you make your way. It is an authority figure offering recognition and approval. It is a yardstick for measuring your progress. And last, it is a mirror that reflects back to you who you think you are. Each person needs help in these ways. What you were not taught while growing up was how to discover the true source of these functions in yourself. Your true nature has the potential to meet all these needs, but only if the qualities necessary to do that are recognized as existing in you. When you, were in a, when you were a young child, it was important that parents or responsible adults were there to fulfill these roles. As you grew up and became responsible for yourself, you had to find ways to meet these needs on your own. Unfortunately, you got little, if any, support in recognizing and developing your own inherent capacities. You had little choice but to internalize your parental role models in the form of the judge. You may not be happy with the way it performs these important functions, but you are familiar with your judge and you know that it is dependable and will always be there for you. Lest we forget the judge is not bad or evil or even useless. None of us would have survived into adulthood without a judge. Our society would not be as civilized as, as it is without the judge's constant presence. Each of us will need a judge until we find a source of effortless functioning, direct knowing, and objective conscience inside ourselves. In the meantime, the judge is all most people have to get the job done. However, it is also mechanical, restrictive, inefficient, and insensitive. It does a poor job of supporting the life of the spirit. So as we become more connected to, engaged, and valuing, this life of the spirit, this inner presence, this emotional um, vibrancy that is our nature, we care about how it feels. We care about our inner well-being. And this, again, as I said, starts to stand in contrast to this tendency that many of us have to be critical, to be negative, to always seeing 
the not good enough, the not okayness that we learned growing up. And so this has become for many of us our frame of reference, this sense of not okay, always evaluating, always judging, always um, criticizing. So, as I said, we can begin to really explore this, to make this part of our deep inner work, our essential inner work. And we can start to see how conditioned this tendency is. It's not truly who we are. It's not an inevitable part of being human. It's not an inevitable part of being who we are as a unique individual. But we can get curious about how did this get so deeply shaped for us? At the workshop I did with Byron Brown, he had us do an exercise in a dyad where we had what's called a repeating question. And the question was, what's right about judging? And this was such a good question to just see, you know, why? We do things because they make sense on some level. And so we just explored on a deeper and deeper level all of the gross kind of responses to that, but then the more subtle and nuanced um, understandings about why and how this tendency to judging got conditioned. And so what we begin to see is that judging voice, as Byron Brown has said, did serve us, has served us in some way. It's been a protector, it's been a guide, but it's gotten, it's become neurotic. It's become constricted. It's sort of gotten in a rut or a groove. And even as we've outgrown that need for that particular voice, not if we ever needed it when it was negative, but now we really see we've outgrown it, but that groove is deep. It's just like punch in the the program and off, off it runs. What I started to see is that the judge even when it's negative, even when it's critical, has a hook in it. There's some way that it catches us. You could almost say that it's pleasant. And I mean that in the the Dharmic sense of the Vedana of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, these very characteristic um, valences that all experience have for us. Somehow the judge has a twisted kind of pleasure in it. And that's why we keep doing it. It's why we keep creating this groove in the mind. It seems like a form of wisdom, right? It seems like in the judging there's discernment. And so, you know, sometimes there's a basic sense of right and wrong. But then, of course, it gets values added to it, right? Preferences added to it. And so, in that, we feel like we're making discernments about what's good and what's bad. It can certainly feel like it offers us a sense of safety or control about our behavior, actions, how other people might view us. It helps us stay out of trouble. Don't do that. People might not like you or don't take too many of the cookies that are out at tea time. The cooks will see and they'll, you know, mark in their big register, you know, who's greedy on this retreat or whatever idea we have about who's looking out for us. And so we can have an experience of a constant push and pull of this 
judge. Don't do that. Do more of that. Do less of this. Not like that. More of this. No, not like that. That's too much. That's too little. Endless and relentless. When we're not aware of it, this is just, as we've said, so familiar that we're just responding. We don't even question this voice. We just automatically do what it tells us. But meditation and metta really bring it into uh, the light of our experience. We start to look at these thoughts and these compulsions to act and respond in a certain way. What's tricky about them is, especially when we're commenting in a judging way, we think they're observations. It's just the mind mirroring reality, right? That person does walk in a weird way, right? Anyone would think that. We don't realize they're actually judgments. We're making judgments that don't actually have a basis in reality. And so just even that, recognizing, oh, that's a judgment. It's not a representation of absolute truth, that this is always good or that's always bad. We often think, because we think something, it must be true. You know, we, we actually can have this belief because we feel something, because we think something. We have a right to say it, to believe it, to act on it. And yes, of course, we don't want to invalidate our emotional life. But some questioning, I think, could really serve us. Of, because we see how deeply conditioned and programmed we are in this. Um, and we need to really come into more alignment with reality and start to see again how deeply conditioned we are through our delusions often. You know, there's a whole talk we could give about how our perceptions, which are often not accurate, really shape, again, our thoughts and our responses and how we relate to ourselves and to others. And so metta and mindfulness really go hand in hand, helping us to see this clearly, to work with it. It's why it's so helpful to do metta for self. Why in the traditional way of practicing, we start with self. Now we've clearly acknowledged that for many of us, self isn't necessarily the easy place to start with our practice, but it is essential to come there eventually and hopefully sooner rather than later. Hopefully you've seen how important that is to truly be able to wish ourselves, be happy, find ease and well-being. As we more and more connect with and affirm our wish to be happy by saying it over and over again and to see it as a natural and valid human wish, not something that's impossible or, you know, for others and not for me, but not this sense of separation, this affirmation. As we really land in that more and more, and again, it's a work in progress for most of us. We're just, you know, finding our way to that. But we start to see that the tendency to be self-critical doesn't align with that. It doesn't sit with this genuine wish for happiness. The self-critical, judging, um, thoughts of insufficiency. Metta doesn't, there's no space for both of those to be 
true. And you just see, it doesn't make me happy. As much as it's being familiar and um, a way of kind of being in the world, it doesn't make me happy. I remember the first time a teacher suggested to me that I say this phrase that we've offered to you, may I love and accept myself just as I am. I remember my first response was sort of incredulity. You mean like this? You know, me? It was like gulp, me? You know, you mean not after the 10-point improvement program? Not after I've done, you know, 10 meta retreats or five years of therapy or, you know, gotten rid of this part of my experience or this uh, way I am in the world? And to say, no, right now. There's no other time. There's no other way. But just like this. Imperfections at all. It was radical. And it's, you know, something that we grow into. Temple told in great detail the story of probably one of his meta experiences. I said to him, great, Temple, you've really lowered the bar for people. So, you know, everything is permissible. It's like... If you haven't wished that a bomb would drop, you know, you're doing good. And I think he said, we've all practiced intensively in this form. It's why we teach it, because we know how valuable it is. So I have my story. It's not quite as dramatic as his, but it was really transformative for me. You know, I'd done years of, of Vipassana practice, quite long retreats, intensive retreats, and I kept hearing about metta retreats, and it sounded like a hell realm to me. To spend all day wishing for happiness, it felt like I'd be living in a Hallmark card, you know, may every day in every way be better and better, and <laughs> unicorns and rainbows, and uh, you know, that. if you don't know me yet, you'll know that's not me. I'm not, I don't have that kind of way of thinking about things. But of course, one has to realize whatever it is that we're thinking, no, no, not me, not for me, is what I actually needed. So I signed up and went to a six-week meta retreat. It was at IMS, part of the three-month retreat, where it was actually a Vipassana retreat. So all of the instructions, all of the teachings, the Dharma talks were all about um, Vipassana practice, mindfulness practice. And they would do a half hour of metta once a week. And that was the instructions I had. I'd, I don't even know if I'd read Sharon's. Sharon Salzberg has a book on loving kindness. I was like completely, I had no idea what I was getting into. And so all I got was 15-minute meetings with my teacher, just like you're having two or three times a week. That was the instruction I got to do this practice. So I started, you know, I I didn't have a lot of confidence, but, you know, I knew it would be good for me to do, Um, and I get this, you know, little bits of encouragement from my teachers, and I'd report in, well, it's kind of going okay, I'm, you know, I'm not hating doing it, you know, I'm, little flickers of metta, and I'd report in, and I'd kind of be looking to see how, you know, how are they relating to what I'm saying, is it good enough, is it meeting some, you know, expectation they have of where someone should be at some point in one of these long retreats. But not a lot was happening. You know, I wasn't wishing ill, as I said, but there wasn't, you know, 
glowing orbs of metta filling the room or filling my heart. It was just very subtle. There was a kind of steadiness to it, but, you know, my mind and heart were what they were. And so I remember going in one day to one of my teachers and, and kind of saying this, you know, it's okay, but it's not great. Maybe, maybe I should try something else, some other category or some other being. And I don't remember exactly what he said, but my, my version of it is, he said, yeah, why don't you try that? Yeah, that, that could be good for you, something like that. He probably said something pretty simple. But what I made into what he said as I walked away from the interview was, oh my God, I wish you'd tr- do something, you know, to make this work. Something perhaps would actually get through and have something happen. And as I walked down to my walking path, I just replayed those words and magnified them over and over again in my mind where, you know, what the teacher was actually thinking was, this is hopeless. I don't know what to say or do to help her. You know, there's no way, but well, try this, see if this works. Of course, he didn't say anything like that, but this is the version I played to myself, and it just played into my sense that, what was I thinking doing a six-week meta retreat? I knew I couldn't do this. This is hopeless. I'm hopeless. I'm unlovable. I can't love. I've never loved. I never will love. Just that whole story of not okay not good enough, and reaffirming all of the negative thoughts I had about myself. I can still picture my walking path, and it wasn't meta-walking meditation, it was trudging meditation of just so sense of aloneness and fear and sadness and and helplessness and hopelessness. And I, I remember even having the thought, could I fake it? You know, I've, I'm only here for another another four weeks. Could I just kind of pretend? And I'd go in and say, oh, yeah, it's going great. You know, I'm loving this. I realized that wasn't going to work. And I remember seeing the school bus go by. And it's like, the school bus. Could I flag the school bus down? And Because I didn't have a car. I, you know, my plane ticket, I'm in Massachusetts. My house is in Woodacre. I'd sublet the house. I had nowhere to go. So there was just this feeling of, desperation and it was so familiar to feel helpless and hopeless that I I wasn't good enough I didn't know what to do that everyone else could do this and not me but somehow there was this moment of grace whether it was because I had been doing metta whether it was the Buddha Dharma Sangha something and I had this thought you know you've been here before it was like I was on at the edge of an abyss And I said, you know, you could go down there, you could swim around in that soup for hours, days, weeks. It's very familiar. And there is that kind of satisfaction of like, I told you so, I told you you were hopeless, I told you you couldn't do this. Yeah, you're right, I am hopeless. And I'm like, you could go there, but at some point you'd climb out. Something would change, inner, outer, someone would say something, nature would open you up, you'd hear something. And my thought was, what would it take to get from this side of the abyss to the other side without going down? I thought, what would that take? And I realized very quickly, I'd have to accept this is who I am. This is what my metta practice looks like. This is what my heart looks like. It's not big and vibrant and open and emotional and, you know, unconditionally loving. 
it's kind of mild and subtle, but it's not harsh to others. You know, there was metta happening. I had to accept that's what my metta looked like. And with that acceptance, I mean, I'd love to say, oh, then the, you know, heavens opened up and the rainbows and you know, but no. But I could continue by accepting this is what metta looks like for me. And that retreat proved to be very transformative for me because I really lowered the bar. And so as I talk to people, I say again and again, no, you know. When they say it's just a little bit of metta, I'm like, yes, that's great. As long as you're not wishing ill will. I mean, even if you are, even if you wish that bombs would rain down on this. There's something there that's onward leading, that's purifying, that we're actually deep within that is this intention for well-being. You're just willing to say the phrases. That's more than enough that the practice can develop out of that. So this is a journey that we're on, that we need to really... um, Be willing to explore and stay the course when it seems difficult, when it seems impossible. So looking at, you know, why do we want to carry around this negative message for ourselves? You know, this internal, many of us have internalized this message from our parents, from society that we're not good enough. Um, you know, I might be hopeless, but at least I know I'm hopeless. And there's some way in which we're aligning with our authority figures. We're not getting into trouble, right? We're not saying no. We're not standing up for ourselves. And so we have to see why or how this became conditioned for us. And then to see what do we want to believe, you know, that I have intrinsic worth and I deserve to be happy, or we're worthless, hopeless. And the metta kind of puts that in stark contrast. We have to be willing to feel the pain of the judging thoughts. And that's part of what deep retreat practice does. In the silence, in the spaciousness, you feel what that feels like when you relate to yourself with harshness. Out in the world, we just skate over, it's just normal. But here we're so sensitive we feel that hurt and that harm. And we explore these deep conditioned patterns, again, not retelling the story, but seeing as they come up, is this true? Do I really believe this? Is this in my best interest to believe this? And we can clearly see, no, it no longer serves us. And the same in if we're judging others. If, if we judge ourselves inevitably, we judge others. It's, it's just they go hand in hand. Um, as we get, create a limited sense of self, this sense of deficiency, we impute that on others. We bring that to our um, relationship to others and it limits our ability to actually have true empathy because we're always acting out of this place of deficiency. And so the practice is, as we land more in our sense of well-being, we can get more curious and more empathic about others and really start to um, understand why someone might be acting the way they are. You know, our difficult people are all trying to find 
their happiness, their safety, their well-being, their acting out of their fear, their neuroses. So it allows this sense of empathy. And the, the barriers that we create tend to seem less necessary, less solid, less real. And this can be really deep work that we do. I, really, I read recently a book I, I recommend called Deep Diversity by Shaquille Chowdhury. He's a um, diversity trainer and coach. He's Canadian, uh, Asian Indian, uh, Indian, Asian Indian, Canadian man. And he, why I like him is he's a meditation practitioner. And so he brings the work of mindfulness into um, his teachings. And so he talks about using mindfulness to bring awareness to our perceptions and our unconscious biases that lead to othering and to prejudice. They can be very deep and real or subtle and you know, not, we're not often aware of them. And he talks about the importance of noticing personal contradictions. He says, all of us display inconsistencies to a greater or lesser degree between our stated beliefs and how we act. Studies show that people who are able to detect the contradiction between their intentions and actions are more successful in reducing bias. Meditators are especially good at this. Their mindfulness training teaches them to observe their thoughts and feelings without judgment, a technique that tacitly familiarizes themselves with such discrepancies. So we can use this training not just to uncover you know, our deep personal emotional conditioning, but also how we relate to what we consider others. And there's a practice he recommends called carrots and curiosity. He says, because the stereotype is a generalization, when we encounter a member of a racial group different than our own, there is a tendency for our brain to recognize that person as a symbol of the group rather than see them as an individual. This does not happen for members of our own group. Researchers have found that getting subjects to ask simple questions about vegetable preferences, as in, I wonder if this person likes carrots, helps in bias reduction. It appears that the power of curiosity can help to humanize others, so we see them as unique individuals rather than representatives of a group. So this ability to open the field of our awareness, to get curious about our inner responses, but also the experience of others, this is the field of metta. This is the field of caring, of actually opening these doors and exploring this possibility, whether you call it unconditional metta, but certainly reducing the tendency to self and othering that's just so immediate for most of us. The true heart of metta sees what's similar rather than what's different. As the Dalai Lama says, when I meet someone, I look for what is common, what unites us, not what makes us different. He says, try to cultivate deep recognition of, e- of the equality of all beings, their potential to be free, their right not to suffer. 
And so just being willing to feel the pain of the closed heart, the pain of um, separation, this is our motivator. We want to feel it, as, as difficult as it is, as challenging as it is. But we have to um, approach this work with great compassion, with great kindness. So we all, I always say we have to do metta with metta. It also really helps to bring humor in. When we start to see this relentless tendency we can have to judge and evaluate, it's just like you can't take it seriously anymore. Jack Cornford always says, just start counting your judgments. And by the, by the time you get up to 359, you just have to kind of let it go, right? It's like, it's just relentless. It's just like this knee-jerk reaction. Don't take it so seriously. Give your judge a persona, you know, the voice of your third grade teacher or whoever kind of embodies that voice and just say, thanks but no thanks. Or, you know, yes, I heard what you have to say, but I'm, you know, I'm doing this. I'm relating to this instead. I'll give you the practice that really worked for me in the last few minutes of the time we have. I was on, again, a long retreat at IMS And I was noticing this judging, tendency to judging, and it was really very, it was painful and frustrating um, because it just seemed relentless. It was like a program that would run. I would walk into the dining room and complain about the same 10 things. The condiments are too close together. We can't get to them at lunchtime. Why don't they have more toasters? They need a sign that tells people to do, you know, whatever it was, the list. And I would walk through the door. And it was like someone plugged in a program. And You know, I felt the pain of it, the frustration, the lack. It was out of a lack of control. I wasn't able to make the change. You know, it should be this way. And I just got so sick of it. And uh, Joseph Goldstein often gives a practice around judging where he would say, add this line and the sky is blue. So I tried that. And I would have a judging thought, and the sky is blue. And you go, damn right, the sky is blue. And this thought is true. They shouldn't do that, and they should do this. So that didn't work for me. <laughs> so what I made as a practice was to add another line. And at IMS, it's in Barry, Massachusetts, if you've ever been there, there are these little beings called chipmunks. We, don't, we have them around here, but they're not common. There, they're really common. They're running over the rock walls, sitting up with their little paws, they're stuffing their cheeks with nuts, and they're incredibly cute. So I made a practice that whenever I had a judging thought, I would add, and chipmunks are cute. <laughs> and it just, it like it reprogrammed the mind, you know, from being negative or critical. It's just like, add something that opens your heart. So you could say, Fiona the hippo is cute. I know some people here love Fiona the hippo. She's lovable. I recommend Fiona the hippo if you need a happiness hit when the retreat ends. Whatever it is, so you want to reprogram, change the mind, and start to see we have more choice than we think we do about this patterning. It's being conditioned. It can be unconditioned. 
if we bring it into our awareness, into the field of metta, into the field of mindfulness, the more we affirm our wish to be happy, these thoughts of negativity, of insufficiency, of not okayness, they just don't start to make sense anymore. And as we affirm the positive, there's just a natural reduction of the wish for judging, for ill. I want to also end with a big secret. All of these instructions we've given you, the categories, the directions, the phrases, and all of your confusion about what phrases and what word and what order and which person and should I do the neutral or more difficult or what about this, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. A day after the retreat, a month after the retreat, will it matter that on Wednesday you did 15 minutes for Carol and 10 minutes for Susie and some minutes with your difficult person? No, because all the time what you're working with is your own heart. Whatever the objects, whatever the way you're doing it, that intention towards kindness, that's what's key. All of the rest are just the structure we put on it. And so I really want to end with a letter that someone wrote after, at the close of another Metta retreat a couple of years ago. He said, Dear Sally, you interviewed me at noon on the next to last day of our recent Metta retreat. It had had no impact on me up to that point as far as I could tell, and I was disappointed. That puts it nicely. Disgruntled is perhaps a more complete description. But not long after I left the interview room, I noticed that my attitude towards my fellow retreatants had changed. Until that moment, I had formed critical opinion of each person my eye fell on. But now my attitude was different. I wished each of them well. When my eyes fell on someone, I would send that person my good wishes, not to say my love. In short, the transformation I had hoped for but knew I could not elicit or count on, had taken place. This mood or feeling continued for several days after the retreat. I continue to say metaphrases silently to myself as I go through my day, and I continue to feel more kindly towards others than I did before the retreat, even if I am no longer as blissed out as I was during the last 24 hours of the retreat. So there's no guarantee that this even will happen. But just again, another call for we don't know what's happening here. If we just keep coming back to the intention for kindness, something deep and transformative is happening, but we don't know the schedule. We don't know when, and often it's not till days or even weeks after the retreat that we truly feel the impact of the work we're doing here. So one breath at a time, one step at a time, one phrase at a time, we continue. That's all we can do and it's all we need to do for this deep process to begin unwinding the tendency towards judgment and criticism and the affirmation of our wish and you could say our birthright, as the Dalai Lama says, to be happy. So let's just let the words settle into silence.
So thank you for your attention. And about a half hour for walking and invite you to come back to, for the last sit together and we'll chant to end the day. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.